Hey guys, how we doing? Wow, that was a nice response. Well done. <clears throat> so I, I do have a kind of a point of curiosity, a question. Are there any like uh, significant family feuds in your home about when it's the right time to start breaking out the Christmas carols or Christmas decorations or anything like that? It's always a fascinating experience to hear some of these these uh, feuds or, or uh, disagreements, traditions or whatever. But uh, it seems like earlier and earlier you have this very confusing thing that happens in our culture and in our neighborhoods and in our stores where there's like pumpkins and jack-o'-lanterns and skeletons and Christmas, Christmas wreaths, you know, like all going on. It's, it's, uh, it's very disturbing, actually, in one sense. I want to invite you to turn back uh, together uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as we continue to walk through this really important letter and uh, such an instructive letter for us in so many ways. We obviously have been talking at length over the last number of weeks uh, about this matter of spiritual gifts as the Apostle Paul introduces this larger discussion to us at the beginning of chapter 12. And we spent a little bit of time uh, in recent weeks on this matter of uh, the working of the Holy Spirit, or we might say, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? How to kind of understand that from Scripture and the evidences of that and the purpose and intent of that and what we read about, for example, in the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. We want to continue on, though, in our discussion as we look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and really just going to focus in again on these first couple of verses What's, what we're going to do is we're going to spend a little bit of time today primarily focusing on the content of verse 12, and then next week, I believe, we'll get into verse 13, but that verse 13 will just kind of take us forward into uh, the rest of this section dealing with the body of Christ. In this section, you'll notice that the Apostle Paul does introduce the body metaphor, the metaphor of a human body as a way to describe or characterize the spiritual body of Christ, the church. We are referred to in this particular passage by the Apostle Paul, those of us who are in Christ as a part of a spiritual body or as the body of Christ on earth, if you will, the the spiritual body of Christ on earth. And so he employs this very important and very vivid and in what we're going to find, very helpful metaphor. In so many ways, the more you kind of look at it, think about it, kind of unpack it, the more sort of profound the metaphor is in all of its various contours. And so we're going to be looking at it in quite a bit of detail and specificity in the weeks, and in the, in the, actually probably next week we'll, we'll be able to deal with most of it, I would believe. But in this early section, I want to kind of draw out what I think are some very important just statements that the Apostle Paul seems to be making here, some important uh, sort of reference points for the rest of the section that I think are helpful for us as just a starting point to think about this critically important metaphor, this critically important way for us to understand who we are. And I am convinced, I know that this has been the case for me personally, I believe that this basically is what you find uh, in, in terms of the, the, the larger flow of this particular part of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I, I believe the Apostle Paul is driving home this point of the need for us as his people, the need for the church to understand who they are fundamentally, essentially. And to the extent that you and I understand what it means for us to be the body of Christ, that completely transforms your view of this gathering of people, of your time commitments in being in this place or another place where God's people are gathered for various purposes. That our understanding of, of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ, it basically removes all of the more common and very mistaken notions of church that have so, I think, crippled the effectiveness and fervency and spiritual vitality of many local churches in our time. Because people do not understand, have not been taught, or have not really 
carefully reflected upon what it means to be the body of Christ, to be an essential part of the body of Christ. And church, for many, is a place that you go. It's a group that you kind of hang out with. It's, it's people who have common sort of practice of faith and religion and styles and preferences for worship or social sort of community dynamics. It's, the, it's all those things, and, and yet it's nothing more substantive than that when, it, when you come right down to it. And, and really, it, it, it misses the entire fundamental point that the Apostle Paul would want us to understand as we look at it here. So let's read together verses 12 and 13 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized in one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. In this opening verse... I want us to just kind of take note of what is a very, I think, simple but interestingly profound principle or, or just observation, if you will. Notice, first of all, the Apostle Paul making this point that there is an observable, a plainly observable diversity within the body. An observable diversity within the body. He says, for just as the body is one and has many members... He begins with this very simple, very observable fact. A single physical body is not one sort of homogeneous blob of common material. That's not what we see in our own bodies or what we observe in the physical bodies of other people. It's so plain. It's so obvious It's unavoidable, it's unmistakable. Rather, the body, the physical body, is comprised of many noticeably distinguishable parts. You're like going, wow, thanks for that, Richard. Really helpful. I did not know that until I came in here, until I sort of blobbed my way in here. I didn't know that, right? But this is a really, I think, important starting point in our discussion about the body of Christ. That there is an obvious diversity in the body. It's it's clear. It's, it's, It's very basic. In the same way that we observe this in our physical bodies, this is the characteristic of the spiritual body. And as the passage continues on, as we get into it, we'll see the Apostle Paul. He'll make specific references to the various parts of a physical body that are clearly distinct, distinct from one another, a foot, the hand, the ear, the eye, the nose. He doesn't say nose, he uses the the phrase sense of smell, but still it's a reference to the nose. These very basic, observable parts, if you will, of the physical body. He will speak to them, he will call them up, To illustrate this principle of what it means to be the body of Christ, he will call them by name and use them to illustrate this very obvious principle of diversity amongst the parts of the body. And although Paul is obviously driving toward a much more profound truth, as we'll see as we move through this study, he's proceeding as though he were teaching small children about the physical body. I mean, it's, it's really kind of stunning. The most tangibly experienced parts of the physical body is what he's calling out and drawing attention to. The hand. Now think of teaching a child about anatomy, the physical parts of the body. This is, this is what, it, this is what it, it's like. This is what the lesson is like. The hand. The sense of touch. How you hold on to something. How you throw something. I mean, a child would be like, I get it. I get it. Or the foot. It's what helps you walk or run or kick or jump. It begins with your feet. He, he would under, he, a child would understand this. 
or the ear. This is how we hear things. This is how we listen. This is even how we learn. We take in information. This is how we're warned, how we're corrected by what we hear with our ears. And in the eye, this is how we see and observe and we close them to sleep. And when we're upset or hurt, we cry from them. I mean, these are like basic physiological parts of the body that even a child could tactically understand their significance and their distinctiveness. No child would say, I understand that the eye sometimes has tears that come out of it when I'm upset, but it's also what I use to throw a ball with. In other words, this is just an obvious, it's almost like overly obvious observable realities that he's pointing to. And then the nose or the sense of smell. I've got a whole article I'm going to read parts of it to you about the nose or the sense of smell. The nose and our sense of smell is utterly fascinating in its impact and import. Completely and utterly fascinating. And by the way, talk about a sausage smorgasbord back there. (laughs) But you take in the aromas, right? And it has an impact on you in so many ways. But a child would understand this. It would resonate with them. And so we can see the Apostle Paul sort of starting this introduction of this body metaphor by just stating what is patently obvious. The body is observably diverse on its face. Look at your hand. Look at your feet. Notice your ear, your eyes, your nose. You just notice this obvious truth, this obvious Reality. Now we know from our study that this is following on from this discussion or this listing out of spiritual gifts in which, as we've talked about many, many times, the Apostle Paul is making the point there about diversity. He is driving home the varied nature of varied types of spiritual gifts, the various apportionment of those gifts, the various manifestations of those gifts, and the various effects of those gifts. So he's coming off the heels of talking about the variety of gifts and all of their manifestation and apportionment and and usefulness and effect to go to this particular point, to, to, to drive home the significance of this diverse observation more prominently. He begins to elaborate on this body metaphor And and he's making a very simple and straightforward point. Diversity within the body of Christ should be as obvious a characteristic as are the various and distinct parts of our physical bodies. That's it. This should be patently obvious to everyone in the same way that these varied parts of our bodies are obvious to us. We don't have to... Put anything under a microscope to see the difference between a hand and a foot is the point. There's nothing undiscernible. There's nothing hidden in mystery as it relates to the distinctiveness or diverse nature of the various parts of the body. This term members is just a translation for parts. Don't, don't, miss, don't read into members of the body as some kind of uh, you know, allusion to some kind of formal membership, although... We could talk about that in a different context as as the structure of membership in the local churches is found implied in Scripture. But this is about parts of the body. You could say the gifts as varied parts or people as varied parts or social strata as varied parts. It's talking about the variety that makes up, the natural observable variety that makes up the singular body of Christ. Diversity within the body should be obvious in the same way that the varied parts of the body are obvious. Now, I want to make a little bit of a a side statement here. This is not Paul's affirmation of the secular social engineering that is so prominent in our culture and even in many churches today. In other words, that, that because... The Apostle Paul is talking about the diverse nature of all the parts of the body that we as people ought to 
take extra efforts to try to make sure that we magnify and promote and build toward some notion of observable diversity in our congregation. That is such a diminishment of what the Apostle Paul is saying here. I can't even hardly put words to that. This is not a biblical version of the mantra, our diversity is our strength. If you want a bumper sticker version of what the Apostle Paul is teaching here, it might simply be, our diversity is our reality. Our diversity is a given. In the same way, the hand versus the foot versus the eye versus the nose is just an observable given, so is the fact that there are many varied parts in the body. It's a given. It's an observable reality. And the fact is, is that in no way is diversity in and of itself an inherent good or strength. In no way in and of itself is it an inherent good or strength. This is why what, ha- ha- what transpired over the preceding years and what seeped into the life of many, many churches in sort of just adopting what is secular socialistic ideologies into the heartbeat of what it means to be a local fellowship and what must be characteristic of local gatherings of believers, adopting these social premises was so devastating to what the Apostle Paul is actually teaching about the body of Christ here. It so undermines true unity within the body of Christ. It magnifies what ultimately divides within the body of Christ. The fact is, as I said, diversity in and of itself, this is not what the Apostle Paul is teaching. He's not teaching diversity as a strength. He's teaching it as a reality, an observable fact. Now think about this for a moment. Why would I make such a pronounced statement that diversity in and of itself is not an inherent good or an inherent strength? Well, listen to what the Apostle Paul said in the opening chapter of 1 Corinthians in verses 10 to 12 of chapter 1. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Why? For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What kind of quarreling? What does it look like? Well, what I mean is, is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. That's diversity. In the Corinthian church, there was a diversity of affiliations and loyalties to leaders. And it was not a strength. It was a rebukable harm to the unity of the body of Christ. Or what about 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There was diversity of immorality. There was all kinds of immoral people. A diverse manifestation of immorality. Sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers. I mean, you, you had diversity there, but it wasn't an inherent good. What was good was that that was characteristic of some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were brought together into the body of Christ. Or what about 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Verses 17 to 22. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? 
Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. There's diversity. There's diversity between those who have and those who have not. Let's let's celebrate the fact that there are those that have and that those that have not. And let's put that on display. And the way we'll put it on display is we'll do it at the Lord's table. And those that have, they'll have what they have. And those that have not will have not what they have not. And everybody will see it. And it will be great. And it will be grand. Because diversity is our strength. Let's put our diversity on display. Will I commend that? No, I will not. This is a lie from the pit of hell. I I was kind of struck by uh, the e pluribus unum uh, motto of the United States, out of the many one. And when you think about what's happening in our country and what has been happening for a number of years, we are watching the very disintegration of, our, of our, the fabric of our society. Because what, has, what is being promoted as the ultimate good is diversity in and of itself, on its own. And it's, it's unraveling the social fabric of our country. It's very destructive, even in a, in a just sort of a national societal perspective. The fact is, is that diversity in any social structure, listen, that is absent a transcendent unifying principle always devolves into chaos, devolves into factions, and ultimately, if left unchecked, will devolve into tribal violence and war. That's what happens. That's the story of history repeated over and over and over again. Pick your region, pick your era, pick your society. That's what happens. This this whole adoption of Godless sociological ideologies and imbibing them into the church has produced more factious harm to the work and ministry and message of the gospel in recent years than just about anything else. Than just about anything else. So when we, when we look at the Apostle Paul here making this obvious statement, We need to stay within the the rails, the guardrails that he puts before us. He's just making a plain statement about the reality of diversity. The existence of diversity. Not the promotion of it as, as its own independent good. In fact, it's just a warning against seeing diversity as something to be avoided. Or something to be worked against. It's neither. It's just reality. It's just an observable reality. So any effort to try to tweak in one direction or another. Or manipulate in one direction or another. Or to deem something as bad or good simply because there's differences. That's the problem. That's the grave error. This is what was happening within the Corinthian church. They were elevating certain gifts and gifted people to a level of standard bearer. This is what true spirituality looks like. This is the measure and standard of someone in the church who is truly of the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. This is what they look like. Everything else is something else. This is what the Apostle Paul is teaching against. There are a variety of gifts. There are a variety of manifestations. There are a variety of ministry contexts in in which the gifts are used. And they are all used with a variety of effects. That's reality. So, getting to this body metaphor, it's a reality. There is diversity within the body. And we just notice it. We recognize it. We understand it. And in a sense, we recognize the necessity of it, and which is where we'll go in our next point. 
But I want you to look with me for a moment as we can kind of wrap this, this point up. Look with me for a moment at what I think is a stunning series of statements by the Apostle Paul in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. It's, it's, it's stunning relative to our contemporary sensibilities, especially when we think about the erroneous notions of what diversity is or what, how diversity should be viewed or why diversity is important and what about diversity is utterly unimportant and insignificant. It, 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 it lashes against our contemporary sensibilities, which tends to be oriented toward diversity in and of itself being an inherent good or an inherent strength. Listen to what he says in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Do you see in that very example of circumcised versus uncircumcised, Jew versus Gentile, in other words, that 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 identifying mark or the absence of it was nothing. What was something? The unifying principle, keeping the commandments of God. Whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, this is what matters. Verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. He goes further. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Great. Bond servant, and you have the opportunity to be free? Great. But that's not the main thing. You as a bond servant, gaining your freedom is not the main thing. For he who called, who was called in the Lord as a bond servant, is a freedman of the Lord. In other words, if you were a bond servant when you were called, your freedom is not contingent upon your temporal servitude. You have been granted freedom in the Lord. That's what's most important. That's what's significant. That's what matters. So much so that he uses this, this same metaphor of, of a, a purchase price. Verse 23, you were bought with the price. Do not become bondservants of men. Do not imbibe the social ideologies, the social sensibilities, the stratification practices of a godless and fallen and corrupt culture that says, I must be this now. I must become that now. This is how I should be defined now. This is, this is the, the caution for every believer. We have a tendency to imbibe secular social ideologies and apply them to who we are in Christ and then try to apply them to how we view life in the body of Christ. And the Apostle Paul saying, that, that, that doesn't matter. Those things are completely irrelevant. Stop majoring on minors. Major on majors. And then he says, concluding this thought, verse 24, So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Again, what was happening in Corinth is that people were imbibing social stratification ideas to determine standing within the church and and within the body of Christ, who they were in Christ. In other words, they were employing secular social ideas to determine spiritual identification and stratification. And he's saying, enough of that. You could remain circumcised or uncircumcised. You could remain bondservant. If you can become free, pursue your freedom. But don't mistake you gaining your freedom in this life as somehow defining of you. Because you were bought with a price, which means... You're a freedman in Christ, but what else are you? A slave to Christ. 
This is what he's saying. This is a stunning and important and yet so basic and simple statement by the Apostle Paul when it comes to the body of Christ. Just recognize that diversity is merely an observable reality. It's, it's just a truism. It's just, it just exists. The body is made up of many parts. And that's fine. That's great. But those many parts don't necessarily equate to a good. You could apply this to the, to the actual physical body metaphor as well. The hand can be used to harm the body. Right? Just because I can look at my hand and say, that's different than my foot, that's great. Well, it's so great insofar as the hand is functioning in concert with the rest of the body for its overall health and well-being. That's the point. That's why this body metaphor is so important and powerful. This leads to a second point, the essential and transcendent unity of the body. So you have this observable diversity within the body, and then you have this essential and transcendent unity within the body. In the second part of verse 12, he says, And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. That so it is with Christ, many, many believe that that's a reference to the church. So it is with the body of Christ, in other words. So all the members of the body, though many, yet they are still one body. And so it is in the church. So this is just kind of flipping the metaphor in the other direction. And then in verse 13, it highlights the transcendent nature of this. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This is the unifying principle. This is the unity in the diversity. This is the necessary and functional interdependence of all the parts working together in one body. What's happening in the church today and in society writ large today is this emphasis upon ultimately meaningless differences as primary. Ultimately meaningless. Now, I want to make sure everybody understands what I mean by meaningless. I mean what is meaningful or meaningless when cast against the sweep of eternity. When put before the sovereign, eternal, transcendent purposes of God. Not that your heritage is meaningless or your life experience in and of itself is just meaningless or I don't have to care about it. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is is that for me or for you to put on display as the most important factor about a person is what's different about them is emphasizing the wrong thing. What we need to be emphasizing and focusing upon is what draws us together in unity. And it's this. It's this essential and transcendent unity. Essential in that you can't do without it. And transcendent in that it was forged or produced sovereignly by God. In the spirit, baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. This transcendent unity of the spiritual body of Christ. We were all in one spirit, baptized into one body. Listen to what the Pillar New Testament commentary says about this verse. The the new humanity into which we have been incorporated reflects standard biblical anthropology. 
It consists of one body indwelt by one spirit, which in this case happens to be the Holy Spirit. We have all been baptized into the same spirit and therefore into the same body. Either in this, either in this very letter in chapter 10, excuse me, earlier in this very letter in chapter 10, verse 2, Paul used the same preposition used here with respect to the baptism into the body. There he spoke of baptism into Moses, where the covenant people of Moses is understood to represent the body or sphere into which the Israelites were baptized. In Romans 6.3 and in Galatians 3.27, Paul uses the same preposition again to speak of being baptized into Christ, who represents the new sphere of covenantal life into which we are introduced by the Spirit. We have a brand new identity in the body of Christ, in the spiritual body of Christ. This new humanity, this commentator calls it. It, it brings us together in this baptism, this common baptism in the Spirit. Now I want to highlight a few things that ties into what we've talked about last week, uh, just kind of elucidating a little bit further. If you notice in verse 13, there are two verbal clauses there. And they're connected by this conjunction, chi, which means and or also. The first part in verse 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. That's the first verbal clause. And then it says, and all were made to drink of one spirit. That's the second verbal clause in verse 13. Now, the reason why I'm highlighting this is because, again, some would point to this verse and even its grammatical structure there, as biblical grounds for seeing conversion and spirit baptism as two separate and distinguishable experiences. We talked about this quite a bit last last week. So it would be like this, part A, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. This would be a reference to conversion. And then part B, all were made to drink of one spirit. This is a reference to spirit baptism, they would say. So this is a, this is a scriptural reference point that some would argue is, is, is a, a testimony of two stages here. The first is conversion. All are baptized. The second is what they would consider to be a filling, a more substantive filling. So it's a second spiritual blessing type of doctrine. We discussed this, obviously, in some detail last week. But let me summarize what is the fundamental problem here. And we, we kind of talked about this last week as well. But listen to this succinct way that it's described. The problem with this is described, again, in the Pillar of New Testament commentary. Any theology that might imply that this one baptism in 13a, in which believers were baptized in one spirit might mark off some post-conversion experience or status enjoyed only by some Christians, attacks and undermines Paul's entire argument and emphasis. This again goes to the point of erroneously separating God's people into different categories. So this idea of these two parts of this one verse being representative of two distinct elements of conversion by being baptized into the Spirit, and then a second subsequent, you might say, uh, filling of the Spirit, or being or a second Spirit baptism, a second baptism, if you will, for spiritual power and, and the gifts of the Spirit and all these things. It totally undermines the thrust of the Apostle Paul's argument, which is driving toward unity within the body of Christ, and not setting up different stratas of spiritual elites within the church. And not creating an incompleteness of one versus another. Listen to MacArthur's commentary on this particular section. He says, Well-meaning and otherwise sound Christian leaders have caused great confusion, frustration, and disappointment in the lives of many believers by holding out the prospect of a second working of grace, which is called by many names. Time and energy that could be used in simply obeying the Lord and relying on what He has already given is spent striving for that which is possessed completely and in abundance. A person cannot enjoy 
what he has if he is forever seeking a non-existent second blessing. An inadequate doctrine of salvation will always lead to an erroneous doctrine of sanctification. Let me say that again. That's a very important statement. An inadequate doctrine of salvation will always lead to an erroneous doctrine of sanctification. If we don't understand what happens in our salvation fully, then we will have incorrect notions about what it means to work that salvation out with fear and trembling. It is is an ironic tragedy that those who seek a second blessing of grace cannot enjoy either. They do not enjoy the first blessing, although it is complete, because they are continually seeking the second, which does not exist. The being filled up to all the fullness of God, which Paul speaks of in Ephesians chapter 3, has to do with living out fully that which we already possess fully, just as does the working out of our salvation in Philippians chapter 2. When we trust in Christ, we are completely immersed into the Spirit and completely indwelt by Him. God has nothing more to put into us. He has put his very self into us, and that cannot be exceeded. What is lacking in our full obedience, our full trust, our full submission, excuse me, what is lacking is our full obedience, our full trust, our full submission, not his full salvation, indwelling, or blessing. And this, this is an important point for us to remember when we think about this, this unity this transcendent unity. The thrust of what the Apostle Paul is teaching here is observable diversity, transcendent and essential unity. We must come together, work together. We'll see this very clearly as we move through the body metaphor continuing on in chapter 12. We must operate in concert with one another as one body if the body is going to function in good health and good full purpose. But it's not just that. It's that we were placed transcendently and sovereignly by God into one body as his people. So the unity that we share in Christ is a transcendent reality whether or not we are working it out faithfully. It is what is true about our salvation and being placed into the body of Christ. And furthermore, unity in the Spirit completely eliminates the significance of the common cultural distinctions of religion, ethnicity, and social status. It completely eliminates the significance of them. In the context of this local fellowship, should it matter at all how much money is in anyone's bank account? Should it matter at all if someone was born in the sticks without two dimes to rub together or who was born in generational wealth? Should it matter if someone was born from this particular ethnic group versus that ethnic group? Should that matter? According to the Apostle Paul, it doesn't. It's just an observable reality. And any time we place significance on what Scripture says is really insignificant, it's not bad in and of itself, it's not good in and of itself, it's just not what's the most important. Then we elevate those things that in our flesh will ultimately lead to our divisions. It will ultimately lead to us separating, not unifying in common mission. And you see this so profoundly here in verse 13. Sandwiched between these two verbal clauses that I just mentioned. This verbal clause of, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. And all were made to drink of one spirit. What does the Apostle Paul say? Jews are Greeks, slaves are free. This is the Apostle Paul saying all different types. Religious distinctions, ethnic distinctions, socioeconomic distinctions, they're all a part of this one spiritual body. 
And that's what's most significant about this spiritual body. Now, as we move forward in the study, we'll begin to see how he, he fleshes this out. For example, if you look at verse 14, he says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? Where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. He begins now to work out how the body is to function in its varied parts. And you'll notice that there's an element here in which the injunction is toward the individual who is viewing themselves and their part in the body incorrectly. In other words, the focus is not so much on how other people are viewing your part in the body, but it's how you and I are individually viewing our parts within the body. Look what he says. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. This, This is a common problem within local churches is that people, because they have an erroneous view of what matters, what's most important in the body of Christ, they disqualify themselves from usefulness within it. Time and time again, otherwise faithful believers who desire to grow and want to be used of the Lord, they disqualify themselves from usefulness because in their minds they have set up some kind of profile or standard of what usefulness actually needs to look like. And, and we fall into the Corinthian trap over and over and over again. So, so the challenge for us as we think about this nature of diversity within the body, because he, again, he begins to start talking about these different parts These different parts are representative of the diverse nature of gifts and social strata and ethnic origin. I mean, it's it's, it's a reference to all that. Jew, Greek, slave, free. These different parts of the body are just references to the differences that make up all of our distinctions within humanity that come together in this common baptism in the Spirit. But look what he does. He points to us individually not to how we should be evaluating and seeing and observing and attributing value to other people based upon some external quality or characteristic. He merely points out the absurdity of self-disqualification. If you and I understand what it means for us to be baptized into the body of Christ, then that's a transcendent reality that we can't We can't discount. We can't determine that it's not valuable, that we don't have a part to play. You do have a part to play. It's inherent in your salvation. And the only thing that needs to be evaluated in this particular case is whether or not we've taken ourselves, quote-unquote, out of the game, if you will, because we have set up some kind of standard in our minds about what significance or usefulness in the body should look like. And we typically do that based upon purely external characteristics. We will even do that based upon individual temperament. Extrovert, introvert. Shy or outgoing. Imagine the sovereign God of the universe, before time began setting his affections upon you, calling you to himself in time, bringing you into his fold, out of darkness and into light, giving you his spirit, gifting you with a gift to be used within the body of Christ, and you and I determining, because we're shy, or because we're not as outgoing as her, 
that we really don't have a viable role to play. This is what I'm talking about. This is what the Apostle Paul is just blowing up with the Corinthians. You have placed so much emphasis and priority and importance on things that do not matter, and you've utterly and completely diminished and missed what is of transcendent significance and importance. And that is you were baptized into the body of Christ, given the Spirit, given gifts in the Spirit to be used to build up the body of Christ for the common good. And you cannot make the grave error of taking yourself out of the game because of some external measure. And this was the mistake of the Corinthians, and it's the mistake of many, many believers even today. In fact, he'll go on to talk about the, the need to elevate certain gifts within the body that are of typically a lesser viewed nature to really combat this whole mindset within the church. We'll we'll unpack this a lot more as we move through this particular section. But let's just begin with this framework in mind, okay? Our diversity is just our reality. The goodness of our diversity is derived by our unity in the Spirit. The value of our diversity is only measured by our interdependent unity in working out our giftedness to build up the body of Christ for the common good. That's the only value that our quote-unquote diversity really has within the body of Christ. And all these messages that we have imbibed from our culture Get rid of them. Just just get rid of them. They have no place within the mindset of redeemed, baptized in the spirit, child of God, who is called to serve and minister the gifts that God's given them within the church. Let's pray.